Welcome back to another episode of the Recommendations podcast, where we talk all things business, love, and science. Today, I am joined by Rachel Wild, my incredible friend, but also someone who inspires me so much every day. She is the co-founder and head of marketing for TBH Skincare, and we met under amazing circumstances, and I'm so grateful for that day, and we'll, we'll go into that later, but just watching you build this brand into the incredible empire that it is now is just so unbelievably inspiring. So thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I wish it was in person, but (laughs) for now this will do. Um, Rachel, you honestly, every day, are coming up with so much incredible content. You're producing some of the most innovative skincare for acne, essentially, um, that I've ever seen on the market. And it's such an amazing story. So before we even dive into your wonderful world of, you know, how it happened, tell us a little bit about the the brand itself and, and what it is and what makes it so special. Yeah, absolutely. TBH Skincare, Gosh, it's been around two and a bit years now in market, and I feel like that's flown by, but at the same time, we've just progressed so much from where we first started. And really, the brand was born out of a medical technology that we discovered um, that was sort of in in the lab, um, if you you know so were to say. Um, it wasn't on market. It was essentially just a technology that this medical research and development company had developed, not for skincare, but actually for like infection prevention in hospital and healthcare. And then it just so happened that they found the same technology that worked in fighting infections in that setting also worked in fighting infections in relation to acne. So it was actually um, a patented technology, a complete breakthrough in science that uh, we were lucky enough to stumble across. So I was working in that industry, medical device industry previously, and it just so happened, yeah, I was introduced to this amazing um, company and then found out about this acne product and then selfishly actually requested a lab sample for my own skin. And then that's really where the brand was born because after I used it, I loved it. And I'd read up on all the clinical papers and then I just, you know, I'm a marketer by trade. I was sort of like quite young and ambitious. And then I started asking questions about like what was happening with this product and how was it being delivered into the hands of customers. And basically, long story short, uh, that's how TBH Skincare was born. So uh, that technology that we have in our products is um, basically first to market globally in terms of treating acne via the breakthrough of biofilm in the skin. It's all quite sciencey, but yeah, that's basically how the brand was born. Since then, we've built it out to be an end-to-end product range for breakout-prone skin. I mean, it's the most amazing story, but the first thing that pops into my head is, did you ever think you'd be running this business? Like, did you ever think you'd be running a company? Because it takes such balls to ask those questions, to host that curiosity and then to do something with it. Mm. You know, I I think that's the beginning of the story here is it's such a mindset. Did you actually see yourself? Did you want to be an entrepreneur? Did you see yourself doing this? No, not really, to be honest. So I think... (laughs) What happened in the beginning was I had a passion for the cause. 
um, and I had a passion for building brands. And so I didn't really think too much into it. I'd never planned to, like, I wasn't actually one of those people where I ever had an aspiration to have my own company. I think I had more of an aspiration to like work for a really big brand in marketing. Like I wanted to work for, you know, like the Coca-Colas of the world and do their ad campaigns. Like if I look back to where I was when I was in my early 20s and what my aspirations were, that was what they were. It wasn't at all to do with running my own business, but it just so happened that it was so serendipitous, like the fact that this technology essentially fell in my lap um, in terms of how I came across it. And then I think just I was driven by a passion um, and and self-belief in what I could create with the brand. And that just fueled my decision to jump headfirst into it. It was not at all about wanting to own the business. And honestly, um, I don't think that I would have entered into it had I foreseen everything that was going to come. I think you have to be naive to do these things. Yeah. And that's the best part about it. I call it blind faith. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to have a lot of that. Um, but it's, I mean, one of the main reasons why I asked you to come on this podcast is because you and I share um, quite some similarities in the foundations of how a business originated. And that's working with family. You know, we're yeah. both co-founders with our mothers. And not a lot of people understand what that means and and how that impacts your experience and impacts the growth. Um, you know, working with family in general can be quite challenging. Working with friends can be challenging or just any business partner. But I think when it's your mother, it's a, quite a niche experience. And I, I think it would be quite amazing to hear from you of your journey from that start to where you are now because you know, you and I knew each other through that. And I know that there were so many ups and downs. And I think so many people would benefit from how your mindset and resilience was able to carry you through to the level of success you have today. Yeah, absolutely. I think entering, as you said, into a business with any partner is going to be challenging. But I think that that family dynamic was extremely challenging in the beginning because you go from having a personal relationship with that person to then trying to establish a working relationship and not having the two cross over is almost nearly impossible. Uh, so, you know, I mean, in the early days, we would butt heads all the time, not only because I'm on the marketing side of the business and my mum's on the finance side of the business. So already you've got two brains that are working very differently from just from a business point of view. And I think anyone in a business partnership where you're sitting on those either sides, like you're going to have pretty robust conversations about the growth of the company and the level of risk, for example, that you're willing to take on. So just from a personality perspective, you know, myself and my mum are so different. Um, and then in terms of, you know, establishing personal boundaries and professional boundaries in terms of, you know, we're used to communicating with each other in a very personal way. And a lot of the time that's not appropriate in a workplace setting. And when you're just a small business and it's just the two of you, it's very hard to draw those lines in terms of like, okay, we're at work now and you shouldn't talk to me like that or I shouldn't talk to you like that. And also, um, you know, the conversations we're having are business related and they're not personal. Like those, it's just completely blurred, all those boundaries. And it can so cause emotional. so much. Yeah, it's so emotional and it causes so much friction because 
the stress that's put under that you're put under in the business is then the stress that you put under in your personal life and your personal relationships. Um, so I think, I mean, yeah, I want to I want to question you on something because it's it's definitely an experience I had. Like we, you you mentioned um, crossing those boundaries between when to you know be mother and daughter and when to be business yeah. partners. I know that I often get very triggered. By my mother and similarly yeah. to you she's the financial aspect and i'm the you know business development and marketing and growth yeah. and sales in a way so again like you said complete different spectrums so how did you actually manage that because that's that to me is the conversation of what were yeah. the tools that you used or what were the conflicts that you had that you sort of what was like the worst experience you had and how did you yeah. deal with it like are you like you know also where i'm russian so we're screaming at each other in russian yeah. in front of employees <laughs> in the early days and it's really embarrassing and you know having to to grow up from from that emotional yeah. reactiveness I think it was lucky we didn't have any employees in the early stages, honestly, because we could iron a lot of this out behind closed doors, um, which is probably a good thing. Um, you know, mum's South African, but I think we're both pretty um, fiery characters. And I think it makes us like, I think really nowadays, like we learn to see a lot of the upsides in what we bring to the table. And even that sort of fuel, like, you know, it's an actual asset if you know how to harness it properly, you know, in business. So really, like, I think I look back, there's not any one major, like, thing that stands out. I just know that we struggled in the early days to set those clear boundaries and, yeah, just not mix personal with business. Um, and I think as well, there was a lot of, um, you know, making sure that we recognised each other's achievements and, like, supported each other rather than being, like, each other's critics. Um, and I think when we establish sort of clearer boundaries in the business as to what we owned and what we looked after and then sort of making sure that other person felt really valued and appreciated and heard, it was, like, the best way for us to just, like, move forward. And it, I, I think it, we also just learnt to separate you know, when we were hanging out and we were having personal mother-daughter time, it wasn't about business. Like we didn't talk about business. Um, and really, I actually reflect and when we did, we actually ended up raising capital um, via an equity crowdfund. And through that whole process, we actually had to draw very clear lines about like what we looked after in the business. Um, and just going through that process as part of the crowdfund actually like sort of laid it out on paper for us and then because we were like talking to so many people explaining what each of us did in the business um you know there was a huge financial element um you know when you do any sort of uh capital raising um you know i think mum really was in her element and she was able to really thrive and bring so much value in that scenario and you know likewise i was able to sort of sit completely on the other side of the table and also bring value in the fact that i was doing more of the pitching and we what we realized in that scenario is we had two different sense like sets of skills and both of them were amazing and both of them were like equally necessary so i think during that whole process i think we both just found our feet in terms of the business and feeling like we actually could see clearly where we were delivering value and how different we were and instead of seeing each other's like sort of weaknesses we just saw each other's strengths and literally from that point onwards 
like it almost changed everything because I think we both were just felt really comfortable and then we stopped seeking validation from one another and we were just like a lot more confident in ourselves like I think both of us in what we were able to achieve it's an incredible exercise to go through I think at any stage of your business predominantly mm. as early as you can if possible if you do yeah. have a partner coming on board with you but it, it also so much supports clarity of understanding of then who to hire yes and you know as you mentioned like in the early days you were quite fortunate you obviously were quite a you're an e-com brand it's predominantly mm. b2c so how was that experience for you going from you on a laptop in the living room pick and packing to quite a big growth in a very small amount of time you know as a leader as someone who has to deal with people people and culture mm -hmm. emotions run wild when there's more than just you in the room you know you have to deal with how people receive information and give you know and communicate and how have you experienced that what has that journey looked like for you and for your mother i guess in the in the same case yeah, I think it's interesting. We did manage as a two-person team for a long time through a lot of that growth. And I think what we learned was that just because we had like, you know, I think some months we were like growing 60% on month prior. Um, it was huge. And then I think what we learned though is that we didn't know the seasonality of the business. Uh, so future growth wasn't guaranteed. It wasn't mm -hmm. just like this sort of repeated cycle. Um, that was a hard lesson to learn. And I'm glad that we sort of had that yeah. in the two-person stage of the business in that, you know, we weren't making these hires thinking that the business was just going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Because if we had done that, we would have had to remove people later on. Correct. And that would have yeah. been really difficult. Uh, so a lot of the people that we hired in the beginning were on retainer. And I would recommend that to anyone starting a business in that if you can outsource and keep people on retainers, it's a, a lot more lean and you can work more on a project basis than, you know, having employees that are just relying on you for income. It's a huge responsibility to take on. When we did go to hire, the first person I hired was actually a friend of mine and I needed assistance on the marketing side of the business. Um, and it was interesting, like we we worked amazingly together, but it was the exact same scenario of like we had a personal relationship and then I had to become technically a boss to her, but then I actually didn't, like in hindsight, we didn't really operate like that. I still to this day don't really, I have a much better technique these days, but I'm, you know, I'm never that person that's like, I, I don't really love hierarchy. I like to work laterally, but there needs to be some sort of um, development of employees and that needs to come from the leader, you know, in that part of the business. And there just wasn't any of that in the early days. It was like the two of us running amok, we were having so much fun. We were doing really well, but um, it wasn't sustainable and it wasn't scalable. So I think we got sort of three months in and I'm lucky that I had a, such a strong relationship with her that we literally said to each other, we're going to get three months in and review this. And if it's not working, we need to call it quits because relation, our relationship comes first. Um, and we sort of got three months in and then, you know, it was like this, you know, lovely, intelligent girl wanted full-time work eventually. And there was no stability in the business at that point to, you know, guarantee that for her. And it sort of it sort of came to a heads where it was like, well, I can't give that to you um, and I need someone who is essentially when you're running a startup, you need someone in there who just believes in the long term um, 
sort of future of the business and is willing to just strap in. And if they're not that person, then they're not that person. And I think, you know, that's where personal goals sometimes just don't align. If you want full-time work, if you want corporate experience, anything like that, it's totally valid. But you you layer a friendship in amongst that and it's hard not to take it personally. Like I think I look back at the time and I took it way too personally. I was like, what do you mean you don't want to work with me anymore? Or what do you mean you, you know, want full-time work? But then I look back and I'm like, wow, it was the best thing ever. And if someone came to me and said that to me today, I would have a very different response because I'm just so much more experienced in being a people manager these days. So that was a very interesting sort of first step into hiring. And I feel like every time we've hired, um, every time we've lost employees, it's just been a learning experience. And I feel like I've just gotten so much better at it. Are you still running the business now from a lateral perspective in regards to hierarchies of operation? Because I think that's such an amazing conversation to touch on. I, I talk a lot about the psychology of, you know, the actual culture and the environment within the business. And this comes up so often at mm. every size business and, and, you know, in every capacity. I, I'd love to hear a bit more of your sort of experience and thoughts on this. Yeah, I'm not running it laterally anymore. Um, in terms of uh, I hired, I ended up actually sort of changing my approach in that I realised what the resource that I was missing was someone who was young and yeah. in their early stage of their career rather than coming in sort of later on. Um, I always say like grads are my absolute favourite people to hire because they are hungry they, you know, want to learn. They're very moldable um, and they're often just like super switched on. Um, but in terms of then I am able to offer them something in terms of extending them and, you know, building a skill set for them and a clear path to promotion as well. And um, people need to feel motivated and sort of like inspired. And I think if they can't see where they go to from a certain place, then they're then they're not that because they, they need to be aiming for something. So, you know, it's much more structured these days where, you know, I've got a marketing coordinator part-time and each week like I'll sit down with her and, you know, assist her and give her aut autonomy in areas, but I give her heavy feedback. I tell her, you know, where she, you know, needs to extend or how I want to see her grow every week and then she has something to work towards and it's a much more productive workspace to be in. It's such an unbelievable amount of personal development that happens during this time. Like I find um, the fundamentals of entrepreneurship is working on oneself because mm. when you get that right, everything else flows. It, at the end of the day, you are of service, right? Yeah. Yes, you run this company and it's your business and with your mother, but if you have a team, if you have customers, you are at service to them. I mean... Yeah. What has that experience been like for you? What have you learned about yourself? What journey have you been on in this, you know, almost two years, of, you know, especially yeah. through COVID because you essentially launched in one of the most difficult times for everybody. What, what has that been like for you? I think I've grown a lot emotionally in terms of um, being more resilient, um, being less emotional about decision-making and, um, I guess, just how to approach things. And I think 
Yeah, I look at how I manage uh, the team and people nowadays and it's it's very different. And I mean, it is such a big portion of my time. I have to give up time to the team and everyone that requires me all the time. But I think you learn to balance it by like, you know, I give people more autonomy over work. I allow them to make mistakes. Things don't have to be perfect. It's the nature of hiring people and giving up control is that they won't do things exactly how you would. And that's fine. Most of the time, that's fine. You know, if it's not business critical, then it's okay, because it's part of investing in their development process. And if you let them do that, then they're actually a bigger asset to you later on. Um, I think that took me a while to learn in terms of when instead of trying to sort of manage someone to the nth degree, if I actually just threw them in the deep end a bit, you know, they'd actually learn quicker. So putting, you know, I often check in with, you know, my employees and say, how are you feeling? You okay? Is it too much? Tell me when to stop. Cause I like to push people now in terms of, you know, giving them responsibility, even if they might not feel completely ready for it. So I think, yeah, my approach has just changed so much in that I've given up a lot of control um, and I've started investing more, yeah, in the people that I'm bringing into the business. It makes such a difference. Like I went on quite a similar journey. I mean, if I think about the first person I hired to the latest person I've hired, it's just a whole different world of quality and just general experience from a relational perspective of how the space feels, how the environment feels. And, you know, I often say, because a lot like yourself, that perfectionism of expectation, you know, because we're such driven people, we're high achievers, we think anything we do, we're going to do it better than anyone. And then suddenly you have to replace yourself with people and delegate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I often lean back on if they're performing at 80% capacity to your 100%, then it's good. We're good. You can, exactly. it can stay. Um, but have you experienced the lasso where they're not performing and they're not teachable, they're not moldable? Like, have you had to navigate those sort of issues of dealing with people and potentially having to let someone go or rehire? Mm-hmm. Like, how has that experience um, changed you as well? Because I know that can be quite stressful in itself. Yeah, I made a, a probably a wrong hire. It wasn't a bad hire. It was just a wrong hire for the role um, in that I hired someone who um, I think had the experience but didn't have sort of like the moldability to the business and didn't have that element of teachability, um, which became really, really important in the role um, and just sort of the nature of the job and the job description in itself. It needed someone in there who was super agile, very sort of moldable and not, you know, sort of set in a certain structure of working. And so that's sort of when I realised I actually needed a grad rather than someone who was experienced. But I had to navigate that. um, And that was really, really difficult for me because I like to keep everyone happy Um, and when you're running a business um, and someone, essentially anyone that you hire, you're paying for and if they're not delivering value, it's costing the business and that sounds like a really harsh way of putting it but it's the truth and you are faced with these really hard realities when you're at the cold front and you're the founder and financially everything falls on the founding team, especially when it's bootstrapped. Like, you know, we don't have institutional investors involved, um, every dollar that goes out the door, you know, 
it hurts. And so if someone's not delivering value, you can't wait to make that call. You just have to make that call and rip the Band-Aid off. And as hard as it is and as many chances as you want to give that person, sometimes it's better to just cut ties. And often I find that, you know, in that situation, I don't think the role was right for her either. You know, like it's it's almost like a two-way thing where you have to do someone a favour. Um, it's better for everyone. And it's interesting because I think I'm someone who, I'm a direct communicator, so I didn't beat around the bush. Like I, I told it as it was and I gave, you know, opportunities for feedback and everything else. And then, you know, I was really clear with the fact that it just wasn't working and unfortunately we just couldn't, you know, continue on like we were. Um, and I think it was a hard lesson in that no matter how I handled myself and no matter how I handled the situation, that person was never going to have the same insight that I did as to what it's like to run a business, you know, for what it's like to look at, you know, numbers and think, I don't get to pay myself this month, but I'm paying you. No one's going to understand that. And so they're going to react in the way that they want to react because they feel unfairly done by, you know, in a certain situation. And I'm sure there's, you know, sort of two perspectives to that. But I think I just had to let it go. And I felt like I'd handled myself really nicely um, and it wasn't sort of received well, which is fair enough. Like, I think it was a hard time. So it's just, it's so difficult. It's probably one of the most difficult moments I've had in the business, but it taught me so much. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, when you're in business, this stuff just happens. It happens and you have to move on. It's so, um, it's so interesting listening to the story because I, I can't even express to you how much I relate. I literally went through something identical. Like, completely the same and even the emotions you described and the experience you described um my big lesson was essentially that that it doesn't matter how you deliver the news that person is never going to understand that perspective and even to the point of you know not paying yourself to pay them like i have wholeheartedly been in the exact same position so many times in the last seven years of operating this brand and it's i think the the backbone that you build, like the resilience that you build as a founder of, you know what, it's not even their problem. And that's no. the truth. It's, no, it's never, not their problem. Yeah. And we don't even need to tell them that is the other thing. And it's, you know, in my time of hiring and having to let go, it always comes down to hire slow and fire fast. That is the biggest fundamental lesson to anyone who's listening that is considering starting a business or in a similar situation to what Rachel and I have just described. It's hiring people is the fundamental root of the success of your company because you might have the vision, you might be the CEO that's the empower and the inspire and the igniter of goodness, but you have this team leading the way, paving the path, doing the physical work that at the end of the day, that consumer, customer, whoever they are, B2B, B2C, they're the ones who they're talking to. That's, you know, that's the connection. And if that team isn't aligned and isn't suitable for the role and isn't passionate as, as much as they can be as close to us, um, then they have to go. And yeah. it's so painful sometimes because especially in a small team, I'm sure you can relate, you know, mm -hmm. when you're all sitting next to each other, like there's nowhere to turn. Like it's literally, you're looking at each other in the face all day. 
Yeah. So it can be so emotionally tolling, I think, no matter how, you know, long you've been around. Yeah, and I think the only thing you can do is be transparent and honest and direct with people. I never shy away from the truth. Um, You know, I'll never sugarcoat things where they shouldn't be sugarcoated. Um, You know, there's a nice way to do things, um, but at the same time you have to be honest, I think, with people and they can at least respect you for that even if they don't like it. Um, And that's the type of way that I operate because I would want the same if I was you know, in in their position, I would at least want honesty and the ability to have an open line of communication, you know, both ways, because I'm, you know, always happy to take on feedback. And when that feedback is openly communicated, even if it's direct, that's totally fine with me. I'd much prefer that than, you know, passive, you know, aggression or, you know, petty sort of drama that shouldn't be, you know, part of a workplace. Exactly. And at the end of the day, you lead by example. And the culture is the, it will always be the essence of who you are, right? You are the founder, the brand in its, you know, truth is you. Mm. Everything that you touch has your fingerprints on them. And I think the people in the team reflect that as well. Often there has to be that alignment, not often, always (laughs) alignment of value um otherwise again they don't fit and you know i think this sentiment of understanding people and understanding communication styles and understanding how to you know receive and communicate very much is aligned to our personal relationships and again that's reflective on what it's like to work with a parent i think um you know in comparison to other founders I myself feel I learned my lessons much quicker because I'm thrown in the deep end and so challenged by these dynamics. And I can see the same for you. I mean, how does that go in your personal life? How are you finding the balance of this emotional roller coaster of success? Because what you've mm. created is unbelievably successful. But mm. what is you what what is the impact on your personal life? Because you are quite young and, you know, driven wow. and, and yeah. Um, I think early on, I, you know, if I look back at the early days, uh, business day to day would just like rock me so much to the point where I was having panic attacks for the first full year of the business, like weekly, I would say. Wow. Um, like awful, like just really, really awful, um, sort of mentally. And what I learned was like, don't ride the highs, don't ride the lows, just don't ride it. Like it's a roller coaster. It's going to be so up and down. I think I've just really had to be very level-headed with everything that happens. And I think I've also just built so much of my personal identity outside of work. Like even though I founded this brand and it's my baby and I'm very attached to it and very passionate about it in so many ways, um, if you ask me like who I am, it's a part of me. It's not all of who I am. And so I'm able to separate myself from what happens in the business. And at the end of the day, if things don't work out and I have to walk away, then I'm like, I can tell you genuinely 100% I'm okay with that because I know that I have other things in my life that just provide me with so much value. And I think that I've just gotten really comfortable, I guess, with who I am. And because of that, I'm able to carry myself a lot more stably through the day-to-day of a startup and this type of business. It's such a powerful sentiment. I 
can't actually stress this enough. I mean, I'm in awe that you um, have gotten to that understanding so quickly because I can tell you now I'm into seven years of my company and I've only just realized how important that is. My entire mm. identity in every aspect was soul cups. No yeah. one knew about anything else. I'm not, I had nothing else to offer. I was soul. And yeah. um, I woke up one day and thought, fuck, that's not okay. I no. can't do this anymore. I'm depressed. I'm not happy. And something is very wrong and I need to fix this immediately. And that's the journey I've been on for the last five months of my life. And mm. I'm so excited by it. But how on earth did you establish that mindset? What took you there? Because the like, I can't even begin to explain its importance. Anyone who is a founder at some point in their journey goes through this. It is so emotional and it can be quite gut-wrenching if you're at a later stage like what I'm going through now where it feels like I've like had to tear off my arm. Yeah. You know, um, so I would love to to dive a bit more into this. Yeah, I think you get to a point, you probably hit a point where you just go, this isn't, like at the end of the day, life's too short. Like, yeah. I don't like I don't have time to have panic attacks every week nothing's worth that like no money no business no like no anything is worth being in that mental state and if it meant that I I think like you get to a point where you're like would I be happier walking away and going and working in McDonald's like do you know what I mean like you go I could literally go and work in retail and be happier than what I am now. Like, yeah. why Why am I doing this to myself? And I think you just have to get to a point where you go, okay, like you need to, it sounds funny, but you need to emotionally just check out. Like yeah. at, at the, there comes a certain point in time where you're like, I actually often sit back and I go, whatever, like, fuck it, whatever. Okay, like what, what's the actual, like what's going to happen? What's the worst that can happen? And I think... You go like, okay, well, you know, at the end of the day, I still have my friends. I still have my husband. I still have my great brain that got me all the way here. It's going to get me other places too. Um, You know, if I lose this, there's something that's around the corner. There's always like another thing waiting for you. So I think you just have to really like be so real with yourself and be like, just shake yourself sometimes and be like, what the hell's, what's the worst that can happen here? Um, Mm -hmm. And you're going to be fine. I think that's the challenge though, right? Getting to that stage. Like yeah. from from my understanding and from speaking to quite a few amazing founders is that often when you're so trapped in your own passion, you almost forget what you're passionate about. Yeah. And it's quite a common characteristic of us to, to be this driven, eccentric, literal driving forces of the success, right? We we pave the path in terms of where where is this company going? How am I going to do this? What's the plan? You know, here's all the energy. And at times we're so inside it, like we're literally so deep in it and we're so full of this passion and fire and excitement. You kind of have to step back and go, what the fuck am I even excited by? Like, yeah. What is this thing that I'm doing every single day? I'm waking up every day and I'm coming to work and I'm working on this thing. Am I happy? Am I aligned to the end value, like the end solution that I'm creating to the consumer, to you know, whoever? 
And if it's a yes, okay, fabulous, keep going. If it's a no, would I be happier working at McDonald's? <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's like this existential um, experience that you really do have to question because, again, like I said, if you get too far into it, like I have seven years in, and you know, you're then you're having those panic attacks because something's wrong or you know whatever the experience is. The detachment and the emotional, de like you know, removal is so much more severe and so much harder. So doing it from the beginning, like you know, it's not about being unemotional or checked out yeah. completely. Yeah. I, I like I fully. No. Got, yeah, I knew what you meant, but I think to sort of reiterate it, it's like you're connected to the purpose, you're connect connected to your why and your values, but the business decisions are unemotional and they're based on what's best for this brand and for the consumer and, you know, the service that you're producing. Yeah. But it's very powerful stuff, very powerful. Yeah, and I think you can't... Um, you know, there's so many unknowns when you're doing a startup and I think worrying about every single possible thing that might go wrong is just going yeah. to drain you. And when I say like you, I think sometimes you just have to say whatever is I think sometimes you have to sit back and say, what use is that doing? Me sitting here and pulling out, like, yes, you have to be so aware of your risks, know your numbers, know your finances. Like, for example, know how much runway you have. Be smart. Mm -hmm. But also at the end of the day, you've got to sit there and go, how is this going to get me from the, to, from now to the next point? And a lot of the time that mentality won't get you anywhere. And I think this is where um, people who are in these roles need to stay inspired and stay really um sort of optimistic about the future because if you don't believe you can get there no one else will and the minute you lose right. that you lose everything like you lose your vision you you lose your energy and this is where like it's negative energy and I think that sometimes you in order to get out of that you need to have that attitude of like whatever like whatever. I need to have big balls right now and if it goes wrong <laughs> it goes wrong because That's essentially right. otherwise you will be paralyzed and you won't move like anywhere you just won't do anything because you'll be paralyzed by fear that's the exact advice um, actually my brother gave me when I was going through something like that. I literally felt paralyzed. You feel like you're shackled mm. to the ground. You can't move yeah. because you're so struck by this. You're, you're operating from that place of fear, like you said. And mm. he said to me, Becky, just fuck it. Do anything. It doesn't even yeah. fucking matter. Just anything, any step forward to the right, to the left, who cares? Just do mm -hmm. it, whatever. You just reminded me about that moment and it, and it did. It changed my life because... The thing is, I'm not a perfectionist either. Like I make so many mistakes, especially product-based business, like typos and yeah. whatever, <laughs> yeah. right? Like that that kind of stuff. But it's so different when the decisions you're making are involving humans, like people, mm -hmm. and that long game of monetary return, whether it's a salesperson or whether it's, you know, an account, you know, in the accounts team, it's so much harder to make those decisions and feel it's like it's so much easier to feel stuck in that because of the impact it has on the business yeah and when you're in those early stages you also don't know what the fuck you're doing like let's be honest no. you've got no experience of what the right thing or the wrong thing is to do until it happens yeah <laughs> and it's it's so it's amazing so to to see that you know you've been around for such a short amount of time and a thousand things have happened. I yeah. mean, how did you even navigate the next phase post-raise? Because what you do with money then is mm -hmm. everything. 
And I can imagine the fear that may have been within you of like, fuck, I've got all this cash now. What do I do? Like, how do we actually do this so we succeed? Yeah. And the realities of business is that, you know, things might seem like a lot of money. Um, they're not. <laughs> but like they're money, not. <laughs> money doesn't go far at all. So, yeah. you know, I think we knew that we would be raising again, like from the minute we closed that round. It was like, mm. this is not the last time, but what are we doing with this money? Like, where is it going to go? Um, and I think we just assessed, like, we just looked at the business and said, okay, like, what do we need to achieve in the next 12 months? Um, and we took on feedback and feedback is a gift. You know, we went through, we had so many investor conversations in that stages. We got a lot of feedback in terms of um, the overall margins of our business, uh, you know, even distribution channels and the fact that, you know, we should be considering retail and all these things that were really steep learning curves for us, but we took it on board and we essentially used that cash and just addressed all the points. Um, so that we knew that we had addressed all these factors for future investors. Mm. And it's really interesting when you get to that stage of business where you start assessing value from, okay, what's the actual value I'm building in the business? It's not always revenue related. It's like I could be building and spending so much time in building the overall value of the business for the next investment rather than I'm building top line revenue or even like profitability. Like it's it's so funny how your whole mindset shifts when you get into that stage. So we actually really focused on like let's get this business model working and like working the way that we need it to be in order to scale. It wasn't like, okay, let's just grow the revenue of the business. So this is where all of like the new product development came in and we were addressing margins and a whole bunch of metrics on the back end of the business. Um, when we were doing that and essentially prepping ourselves for the next stage of growth. So, yeah, it's very interesting. A, it's so testing, but I think that's the big, big lesson most founders aren't taught. This is it. Mm. This is that exact moment that if your business model is not right from mm. the start, you're fucked because mm. having to change your business model later is disgusting. It's disturbing. Yeah. It's hurtful. It's painful. It is, there is so much collateral damage involved because people are involved in that as well. And, yeah. you know, you and I relate so much. We're both product-based businesses. Mm. Margins are not fun, especially mm. right now with all the inflation and yeah. all the, like, there's just so much complexity at the moment. And I know that we're in a time in a market where people are understanding of that, but navigating it during a raise as well, or at least building the foundations of that. I mean, what was your biggest challenge because I can see you know what you're building here the, the empire is on its path but you have to implement some really strong systems and processes what what was the fundamental lesson you're learning I mean I think there were a few I think <laughs> that, like there's just been so much I think yeah interesting uh, we're talking to you know we'll be talking to investors and essentially you can prove a model um, and you can forecast and so many people will say, okay, well, come talk to me when you've done, when you've gotten there. But in order to get there, you need cash, which means you need investment now. And it's like, yeah. it's such a frustrating sort of point to be in the business where you're on the crux of cracking it. Like you'll get to this point where you 
you have set up the, the exact big business model, you have the margins and you can forecast out and you go, if this comes off for us, if this comes off for us, and they're not huge assumptions. Like we're not talking, you know, crazy out of this world things. They are normal things that are very possible. And you can say, I'm going to forecast this will happen and this will happen, but I need working capital to support it and all these things. It's like, I need money to still make that happen. If those things happen, which there's a pretty sure chance that they will, I'll be sitting on a really profitable business that'll be completely ready for scale and it's just so frustrating when you can't get there because you're limited by cash and I think the number one lesson is raise more than you need like raise more than you think you need always um and sort of uh I think lean on advisory heads in the business is what I've learned is like there are people that have come before me that have done this so many times and they have so much knowledge to impart and you don't have to be alone when you're making all of these decisions. I think I've built, I've been really fortunate to build a really amazing network of people around me that I lean on all the time. We now have formal advisors in the business um, with extensive experience across a lot of the areas where we're looking to expand. And it's just been invaluable having those heads to actually lean on and be like, okay, um, I feel like I'm up shit creek without a paddle. What am I doing? <laughs> so, and they and they can just center you and really focus you and give you this really methodical approach of like, okay, these are your top three priorities, go do. Um, and I think you just have to surround yourself with that. At the end of the day, you can get money from anywhere. You cannot get that type of strategic advice from anywhere. And that is so valuable. And if you build that into your business, um, you're just so much better supported to succeed, I think. Without a doubt. I think that's the number one piece of feedback for life in general. Even if you're not a business owner, get a circle, get a get a tribe yeah. of humans that are far better than you in every mm. way. Um, yeah. I think I found my first mentor when I was 17. It's actually quite a funny story. I was in a bookshop, uh, sorry, I was in a cafe and I had a book under my arm. It was a Simon Sinek book, Start With Why. And I was about to order a coffee and this man behind me swipes the book from under my arm. No. And I'm like, I turn around, I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> and it was this sort of like older, older man. He was probably in his 50s at the time. And he sort of laughs it off and goes, I've been wanting to read this book for ages. Is it any good? Can I borrow it? I'm like, oh, we've, I don't know you, but sure, screw it. Why not? <laughs> and he's like, I promise I'll bring it back. Let's meet here in two weeks and I'll give it back to you met him again in two weeks time. I, I had a gym across the road, so it was like easy. Yeah. Um, and turns out he was one of the top uh, educators in NLP in the country, which is neuro-linguistic programming. And he had a school of NLP and he basically inspired me at the age of 17 to become obsessed with the psychology of language and people and leadership and taught me everything I know. Um, and that was my obsession with having mentors. That's where it all began. Right. But it changes your life, first of all. Yeah. And But I do, I mean, I, I just had to share that story because you can meet a mentor anywhere, basically. So don't be, yeah. you know. But the thing that came up for me when you were telling that story was there are so many incredible brands that are just launching right now, especially in your industry and in skincare and makeup and, you know, what, how do you think you would have gotten to this point of success if you didn't raise? Because it 
your your brand was built on such a foundation of excellent marketing and that's all you that's branding and marketing and not everybody has that skill set and i can see that the fundamental challenge for most micro brands that are launching is they struggle to build that relatable brand and then they expect mm. to raise out of nowhere because they can't bootstrap because their business model isn't functional i mean do you want to talk a little bit into that of what's happening in your industry right now and what you can see mm. forming? Because I think, can you actually be successful with the skills that you've expressed without raising in cosmetics, skincare and makeup because it's such an intense industry right now? Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, I mean, I would say you are like one in a million if you... <laughs> yeah. Literally, if you have a skincare brand that you bootstrap that's profitable from the beginning, you are one in a million and you're probably a celebrity or like an influencer or something that's built your brand yourself because you cost per acquisitions in this industry. So essentially the money you have to spend on marketing to acquire a customer is through the roof, um, yeah. particularly in skincare, even across like, you know, retail and D2C, particularly D2C. The other thing is that, um, this like paid marketing engine that once fueled the quick rise of all of these social media brands yeah. is failing at the moment. It's I mean, it's it's like really struggling and people are, I think brands are having to innovate now. And it's really interesting, the trends, because I think these brands that were once, you know, white label, clever marketing, like, you know, it's a white label product off the shelf. It's nothing special. It's cleverly marketed and sold to you via this paid model that was working as a complete engine once is no longer working. So I think whilst that's challenging to existing brands that they don't have this paid marketing engine as much as they did before, and I think it's recovering slightly now, but they don't have it as much as they did before. And I think this, the problem with that is, you know, their their models struggling in terms of how they're acquiring customers. Yeah. Um, but they are less challenged by these new brands because these new brands don't have the same, you know, sort of foundation to launch as those other brands two, three, four, five years ago did. Yeah. And I would say it's like those brands that launched around five years ago were ripe for that, like influencer marketing, all of that. It just shot them into sort of the minute they had a bit of money to spend in that area they were successful that's not the case anymore and I think what it's come back to is long-term brand building what value have you built in your brand because I think that it's almost gone like back to traditional media I think yeah I was that, gonna say yeah it's outdoor at you know billboards it's activations it's events in my opinion this is sort of how I see the marketing landscape evolving you know it's streaming you know channels and it's all of these things that um, are actually a lot less trackable, but when invested in well with the right brand, um, will be successful. So you can't measure it as well, but I think if you've got the cash, and this is where I say, how can you bootstrap this? Because you need cash to build a yeah. brand like that. Yeah. You need big money to go outdoor media, to do all of these traditional media things. And I think it's going to work, but where are you getting that money from if you're bootstrapping? There's just like absolutely no way unless you yourself have built the brand off your own brand and you're already very well known or you're just really rich. I don't know, but, you know, it's just I don't know how anyone builds a brand. And I think for investors, it's an interesting time to be raising capital. All of mm -hmm. the tech, sort of tech-based businesses, all their valuations are down. Um, yeah, huge. 
investors are sort of saying, okay, well, you need to monetize your business. I need to see something profitable. Um, it's actually quite a good thing, I think, for product-based businesses because they're becoming more attractive to investors rather than tech investments where they can't see that exact monetization. Yeah, Which is of unheard of, by the way. This is new yeah. in the industry ever. And, you know, the other thing I was going to say, which I think you may agree with, is I think it's a really positive thing because you look at what happened before COVID even, um, the entity or the concept of Me Too brands was mm, booming. Yes. Everyone was creating a business from their living room. Everyone thought that they could become a business owner, an entrepreneur and copy each other. And there was 50 million versions of the same shit. Mm. And obviously, as someone like me, who's passionate about sustainability, it shits me in that sense. Mm. But mm -hmm. also it eradicates the authenticity and the credibility of the people working so hard and building incredible brands and foundations like yourself. So mm -hmm. what I actually see happening is this is the universe regulating itself in a way where yeah. all the small, inadequate, inauthentic, unnecessary shit will stop mm -hmm being there, you know, these small little micro me too companies will wash away. There'll be less overconsumption, overproduction, and the yeah. crux of the brands that really add value to the world, that really produce a product or a service that is going to change people's lives, that's mm. who's going to stay and succeed. And exactly like you said, I think investors now are recognizing that because I can see the suffering in the tech industry. I have so many friends who are building apps who are getting rejected left, right and center and yeah. suddenly product-based is being looked at. I mean, in, in what world did we think that was going to happen? Yeah. And it's still a tough climate, I think, to yeah. raise in, um, especially when you're sort of early on. I think um, anyone looking to build a business in skincare, good luck turning it <laughs> profitable within the first two years. Like, yeah. you know, it's just not a thing. So I think what you learn, though, is that um, a path to profitability is really important when you're pitching for investors, but you don't uh, investors won't expect you as a business to be profitable from the get-go. A lot of the time they won't think that you've tried hard enough if you if you are profitable. It's like, you know, like you need right. to have in invested heavily in the brand and in marketing and that's not going to pay off in profitability immediately but you need to have a model that shows that at scale that's exactly what it's going to do, like you're building something. And I think as well investors won't look at you unless you have IP that's novel in some yep. way. Um, so if someone can easily replicate what you've done, um, you know, it's a huge risk for investors to take on. And it's why, you know, the IP around our acne product is critical in the fact that we're building a business with a lot of value because it has this IP. It's different. It's clinically trialed. You know, it isn't all, yes, the marketing's a big element of it. The brand is a huge element of it, but it's backed by this science that can't be replicated by competitors because it's patented. And that's just so valuable. And I think you really have to have your wits about you when you create a business, be really honest with yourself. Like, am I doing, am I adding value or does this product already exist in market? And I, that's exactly it. And that's what it's forcing the economy of business owners to do. And mm -hmm. that's why the small me too companies will wash away because of yeah. this exact reason and i think it's so bloody amazing because all that's going to be left is quality mm. that's always going to win and that authentic exactly like you said value adding truth and mm. i think that's 
unbelievable and very much what you have created and which is so inspiring and that's why I want to talk to you about that <laughs> it's because you are the prime example of you know you've literally paved the way and I think whatever you do next is again just the beginning because there's just so much potential in this incredible brand to change so many people's lives yeah no thank you and that's why we started it you know we we really believed in the product that we had and we knew that people needed it mm. i mean just to sort of touch on to end on nicely from this whole experience because i know there there's so much we haven't even spoke about and and the next phase of your journey is going to be so special but what's this like one fundamental lesson or learning that you can share with anyone that might be going through something similar i think you just have to trust the path that you're on and whether that ends in you know quote unquote success or failure i don't really believe in failure if you learn something from it it's not really a failure but right. you you have to trust that you are going to end up where you're meant to end up and if that is you know losing a bit of money and learning a shitload then that's just what happens and it's going to serve you in some way so i think you can't control everything that happens um so i think like you just need to open yourself up to like every single possibility be very open-minded stay optimistic but also you know be real with yourself and i think just strap in and know that any challenge that you're facing is going to better you for like the next time you face something similar um and yeah basically anything rough that you're going through i always find it i always reflect and say like wow I'm becoming so much more resilient than I have been previously. Like I look at the person I am now compared to two years ago when I started the business and I'm a lot more emotionally mature and a lot more resilient than what I than what I initially was. And that gives me confidence in myself. So if anything, you know, I've gained all of that no matter what happens with the business. So I think you just have to try and pull the positives out of any situation. Amazing. And it's so true, I think. And I mean, to add on that to what you said before, utilize your resources around you, build that circle because, you know, at the end of the day, you're not alone. There's not so many of us out there and so many people willing to support and help. And it's what makes this world of entrepreneurship so addictive because we get yeah. to talk like-minded humans and better ourselves and be at service as much as we can. But Rachel, you are one of the most inspiring women I know. You have done so much in such a small amount of time. And like you said, from the moment you and I met to where you are today is a completely different person and even more so, um, you know, in awe of, of what's next for you. And, and I'm so grateful for what you've shared with us today. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me. I always love chatting to you. Always. Thank you. Yay. <laughs>